Mm-hmm. You're, you're like a hostess at a party. I suppose quite a lot of pressure. But, you know, my job was to pass around the comedy sandwiches and um, <laughs> not, not get off with the other guests. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast that celebrates the contribution of diverse people to British stand-up comedy past and present. This is a research project at the University of Kent with seed funding from the Participatory Research Fund. I'm Ollie Double. And I'm Sophie Quirk. We are academics at the University of Kent who've both been studying comedy and researching it for quite a long time now. Yeah. Uh, Ollie, tell us about what made you want to make this podcast. Well, what it is, I was doing some research on uh, alternative comedy of the 1980s and there's a narrative about that, that it was trying to be non-sexist, non-racist, but it was all just white men doing it. And although there's a grain of truth in that, there were a lot of white men involved in the scene, there wasn't a brilliant balance of performers. There's also a problem with that argument, and, and, and it's that you, that you erase the women and people of colour who were actually there at the time and working in the scene. And I don't want them erased. I want them celebrated and <laughs> yeah. recognised, and that's why I wanted to do this. How about you? I've been doing some research looking at uh, groups who are marginalised in the comedy industry. So, for example, women and people of colour and the brilliant nights that have started up like um, Wacky Racists, uh, Fuck It Up, the Femmes of Colour Comedy Club. Um, and actually also slightly more unusually, the Guilty Feminist podcast is a kind of platform that does stand up, among other things. And looking at where we want to create more space for people within the comedy industry, what are the brilliant proactive ways that people are doing? doing that so like you wanting to celebrate the diversity that is there while acknowledging and understanding why there is a real problem with overrepresentation of uh, the white guys uh, white men and others who conform to that kind of universal human subject um, but also to really kind of celebrate those practices that are getting visibility for people yeah, I just want to double click on, on Wacky Racist, because for people who don't know, that, that sounds like it might be a dodgy venue. <laughs> no, it's run by the wonderful Sophie Duca, um, and it is a club that purposefully provides a platform for anybody whose identity or voice is marginalised elsewhere and has a particular emphasis on women of colour. So it is not for people who are actually racist. Which is important. Which is important to note. <laughs> All right. So today we've got Charmian Hughes. And why I'm really excited about this is because she is somebody who started back in the 80s, but is still working today. Now, to give you a bit of context for this, this was the first interview we, we did for this project. And it took place in June 2022 on a beautiful hot day. It happened face to face. So Charmin came to visit us at the university. We just had lunch with her. She was excellent company and she continued to be so as we interviewed her. It was a fantastic afternoon. Over to Charmian. I'm Charmian Hughes and I first started performing stand-up in the late, mid-1980s, accidentally. Oh, tell us about accidentally. Well, I had been doing some clowning. I went to clown classes just so I could meet some new people to kind of help me with the despair of working in advertising, where people were telling me how wacky I was, which I hated because I wanted to be taken seriously. And so I went to clown courses, you know, where that wouldn't really matter. And I ended up doing evening classes at the City Lit every single night and things like mine and juggling and 
acrobatics. And in the end, I joined um, a group of people who were going to start a clown theatre troupe. And so we did that for about a couple of years. It was great because it was the time of the the South Bank and the GLC mm. being very anti-Thatcher by financing lots of art projects. We've got lots of gigs. And then I saw my first stand-up comic, who I think was Jenny Lacote, you know, comedian of the modern age. And I thought, God, she's just talking. She's not having to stand on her head and juggle and be humiliated on a daily basis. So <laughs> try this. So it took a while for me to understand the difference between, you know, being a stand-up and um, a clown. Mm. I mean, I hadn't really seen a lot of stand-up. I'd seen stuff on the telly, you know, old-fashioned stuff. So it took a while to learn how that mm. functions. Can I ask you about that, if it's not too complicated a question? So... You refer to the, the, what the difference is between clown and stand-up. What, what was it that fell into place to make you understand that? I think that uh, when a stand-up talks, and a stand-up in a way is more intelligent, I don't mean that to insult clowns, but there's more um, that the, the clown often has an innocence where the clown doesn't understand the consequences of what they're doing, and that's very funny, um, so they don't understand that hitting themselves on the head with a mm. mop, um, or that that's going to happen. Whereas stand-up is more analytical, I suppose, and talks. And well, the clown has a lot of contact with the audience, which should do. Um, that sort of thing. But I, when I started, I did a lot of the things that had made people laugh in my clown shows that I wasn't really allowed to do. People, my, my troupe got very cross. <laughs> and like talking, commenting, <laughs> analysing. I tried a few of those things. And also because I'd done a theatre to complicity course and a Philip Golier course, and both had been really unsuccessful. And I'd been abused by the teachers verbally on a daily mm-hmm. basis, despite the fact it cost me like a grand. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of tried to get my revenge through calling my first stand up. Sort of character, I call myself Teatro de Existenciale, wore a red nose and was very wanky. <laughs> <laughs> but it was but it was the time when there were a lot of clowns, so a lot of people didn't know the difference, and, and uh, that would be something that I mean, if I tried that now, I would know that you have to do quite a lot of signposting and signalling to tell your audience it's all right to laugh with you, but you want them to think you're real. But you want them to be able to mock that without feeling terrible. So it's a difficult thing to do. And I, I didn't quite get it right. But some, I, I, I did a piece of performance art as part of it, which was called, which was the climax of my act, which was called My Orgasm, A Woman's Story. And also I used to have a sword, balance a saucepan on my tummy. And, um, <laughs> that kind of, but some people, that was just the most awful act in the world. But they didn't get it because I didn't... Ex- execute it in a you know in a clear enough way where they could have lots of different attitudes and observations going on my friend at the time Dave Thompson um he used to love my clowning and say you know when you talk in between that stand-up that's the stand-up and so really the orgasm was the only thing that was left of that in the end um before I started to get more of a stand-up kind of act 
which I kind of had to do if I wanted to get gigs, you know, not be some nutter. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, was that... I wore shorts. (laughs) I wore... Do you know I used to wear a sailor outfit? It was, a de- it, was, it was so sweet. It was like a little sailor top and a little sailor shorts. <laughs> and blue. And I mean, I was already 30 by then. <laughs> have, you, have you been performing continuously since then? I have been amazingly uh, performing continually. And then I, I, through good fortune, met my husband and my audience. So, so the, late, the longest put down in history. And he, um, so I, I got, I had, it was quite, I was quite, um, oh, well, I was like in my late 30s when I met him. So um, I had my children quite close together and was trying to keep on doing my stand-up, mm. sometimes taking my daughter in a car seat, you know, to a gig where she sat in the front row and with a sweary mummy. <laughs> so David, at the time, David at the time was working as a printer and he did night shifts. So... Um, I, I continued to do it, but I found that the, diff- the the hours really fitted in because the evenings, you know, could be free. But my brain had been, I, I, to be honest, bored out of my mind with the repetitive things all day. You know, delightful, lovely, you know, lovely babies and everything. But you know, baby beats and monkey bongos and <laughs> uh, baby ballet and yoga and massage. That are not my thing. And by the time I got to my gig, that was often the first time I'd had any time to myself to think. And I'd be going through my material as I walked on stage. And um, there was one where I went on and there was some reviewer in there. On, on, and I was kind of very low energy and got you know, something written about that I was a low energy kind of performer. And, and actually I'm quite a high energy kind of performer. And I thought um, that... I was doing myself no favours by doing those gigs while I was feeling like that. And also, I was going to these huge extents, like going to Bristol into the, one of the big hurricanes, mm. while I was still breastfeeding a child. You know, I'd left the milk behind, and I had this, you know, in a bottle, and I had this thing that of, of, I had five hours, two hours to get to the gig, do the gig, and two hours home. And um, it was just for 100 quid. And then I just thought, I'm not doing that anymore. And that's when I started comparing really regularly at downstairs at the King's Head and Crouch End, which gave me a kind of safe space to be relaxed as a compare, where you can try new material and also the pressure is not on you. You're like a hostess at a party. I suppose quite a lot of pressure. But, you know, my job was to pass around the comedy sandwiches and um, <laughs> not not get off with the other guests. <laughs> then I began to build it up again. So that was about the very late 90s. And I think that only when my children were about 10 and could go off for the summer to a grandparent, well, could I think about things like the Edinburgh Festival again? Mm. I just thought otherwise it's just so much pressure. And... You know, I, it was fantastic to have my my children at the age that I was. You know, I was 40 when I had my first baby, no help. Uh, well, my husband was around. But, um, you know, it was fantastic. Why waste it being on the M4 to do some pissy gig in Bristol? You know, I could be killed and then everyone would be orphans and, you know, got a bit like that. 
you get obsessed about the danger um, of what would happen and how awful it would be if everyone was orphaned. So anyway, mm. so continually. One of the reasons we're doing this project about sort of diversity in stand-up, I mean, there are two, I think, two main um, sort of motives. One is because it's social justice. I mean, having more diverse comedy is mm. good for that. But the other is, if you if there are blocks to diversity, then what you lose is artistic because you get sections of the population that aren't, you know, producing this work who would have something to bring to the table. You know, it would be interesting. Mm. So, so with all of that in mind, what do you think that makes your work distinctive in terms of subject matter, material, performance style, etc.? Well, for me, I'm probably beyond middle age now. I'm, I'm 66. Yes, I know. Amazing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hear the gasps. <laughs> but there comes a point where, uh, as a woman... I feel very much I've transcended all the kind of problems and obsessions and um, kind of self-consciousness that I had when I was younger. And I've got the licence or permission to do exactly what I want. Um, So I feel almost I've got the voice of wisdomness from being older. And I I don't care. I just don't care. And also I feel... You were talking about, um, you know, man, woman, pronouns and things. And I don't mean that I'm gender fluid. I mean, it just simply doesn't really matter that much. My point of view is so kind of transcended. Um, the thing of, you know, do people fancy me? Yeah, probably do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not my problem. Um, it's just so free of all that. It feels fantastic. And when I was in New Zealand, I only started to, to travel, you know, to the outer hemisphere, whatever you call it. When I was 60, I went to New Zealand and Australia for the first time when I was 60, on my own, because I just fancied it. And there were some festivals and did some comedy, and they take it very seriously there, so they they loved it. And I was described as a mad auntie on acid. And I kind of embraced that, because I kind of feel that's my point of view. Um, And also, I uh, just have got much more in touch with my anger, but it's great. You know, when you're younger, if you're angry, it's kind of... Ooh. When you're older, it's hilarious. And, and people don't mind. They expect it. They expect you to be angry, you know, in a good way. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's a brilliant But, but also as an older person, I, I, I mean, I know that Oliver remembers my comedy from, you know, the, the olden days. I would say I am like a ten times better comedian than I was then. I'd say I'm a five times better comedian than I was three years ago, even. Mm. Um, and so I kind of I want to I want I want it all really. I mean, I want you know I want to be doing the gigs and and um, sharing that with people. Um, and sometimes people make assumptions that oh you know it's a they don't about the men. They don't about older men. Mm. But older woman, it's kind of like you're the. It's like some terrible Crohn's curse. <laughs> that's going to be. You might. They might catch something off you like age, um, <laughs> and or that you. You know because comedy, comedy audiences. Comedy is a place for kind of freedom and licentiousness, and you know, being able to say what you you can't always say. And the and and a lot of 
younger people might assume that an older woman's like kind of matron who's going to come tell them off and they're not allowed to. But, but I don't think audiences are really like that. I think that's what promoters think audiences are like. Audiences, are, you know, will love whatever they love. Hmm. I think the mad auntie on acid is actually a really rich description. Yeah. Because you've got you've got the the older woman thing implied by the auntie because that's what yeah. we associate because they've got yeah. maiden aunt and that kind of thing. You've got the mad, which is eccentric, which is a brilliant quality in, in comedy, and you've yeah. got the on acid, which suggests familiarity <laughs> with the subculture. Let's put it that way. So, so yeah. it's, it, do you think that, that there's a kind of license that you get from that? Definitely, definitely, and you've I can be playful. Um, with an audience, with a young man, I sound, I sound horrendously creepy now, <laughs> but there's no, there's no real threat, and so I, kind of a bit like, I went to see Barry Humphreys last week, and you think about Dame Edna, I had complete licence to do whatever she wanted to do, and I had a weird thing um, that happened a couple of years ago, because I, what I wear on stage, is I wear a dress with exotic birds, or I wear something quite bright, that's kind of nice, but bits of 1950-ish, but I suppose is like a costume, but I didn't realise it was a costume um, until I did a gig for Paddy Lennox. Do you know Paddy Lennox? I did his gig. And for some reason, I'd worn a party dress at a party, mm. and some other lady comic, female comic, said, that's so fantastic, that dress. All sparkly, like a cocktail. You should wear that on stage. It's just brilliant. And I wore it on stage... And I died on my ass yeah. because I was a different person. You know, I was, I, I was a person, if I said bitchy, horrible, th- you know, not horrible things, but if I said bitchy things or kind of slightly licentious things, I was, su- you know, I was like, I was like a louche divorcee after everybody's husbands. Um, and what I said was just wasn't, you know, it was, sort of, it was okay. But if, when I was wearing my other dress, everybody loves you know, that I can say what I want to say. Mm. So it was, I was, I didn't know it until then, and it was quite hard to explain. Um, I know that didn't go so well, that gig, but it was my dress. Um, but it was. <laughs> but it's, 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 sorry. sorry. I could, yeah, it was like... Is that about being, is that about people pigeonholing women in particular as a particular kind yeah, of woman? Yeah, it was a cock, you know, it, was, it wasn't anything, you know, lewd. <laughs> <laughs> It was quite an archetypal dress. Maybe it was more like that, that it was a, a sparkling kind of cocktail dress that I suppose divorcees who are trying to steal your husband away from you would wear in some awful archetypal world that doesn't really exist. Whereas the other dress is, is the mad auntie on acid. It was like it signalled what, like domesticity or... Which, sorry, what was that? What, what do you think the other dress kind of like? Was I don't think it is just made feel I think it's kind of not. It's not. Um, it's not Mary Poppins ish. It's not kind of twee, mm. but it's a bit otherworldly. It's mm. you know with things like birds, maybe a bit witchy, mm. but in a nice witchy look. Um, I don't know. Don't know what it's 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 lovable. It's adorable, mm. but adorable in a way that you know I don't want to shag you. So they're going to think she's not going to try and do anything awful to me. She's saying rude things. She's not going to try and sit on my lap. Mm. Or if she does, it'll be okay. Be safe. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, how do you think 
you know, I mean, one of the things I find really interesting about your story, if you like, is that, you know, you started a, a very rich time in the history of British comedy, right, where it's being reinvented and reconfigured. Mm. And, and you're still performing now, right? Um, I am. Right, and that's, that's an amazing thing. Yeah. So how do you Several think... times a week. There we go. <laughs> so so what, where do you, um, what, how do you think you've, your act has changed over the years? Um, I think it's changed because I have kept in step with my own changing world. So when I sort of see the first half of my career, when I was you, in that heyday of alternative comedy with so many people going through to telly and Joe Brand and Alan Davis, Frank Skinner, all that lot, I think my material was, you know, it was, it, it was I mean, it was a lot of knob jokes. It was that, that, that was the thing, a lot, a lot of stuff about, you know, my love life. Um, and then when I had children, I did a lot of stuff about that. In, but the, I became less realistic as I went on. And my view of the world, while I'm quite observational, is also a bit surreal. Also, it's become darker because I acknowledged a lot more of the darkness that I've had in life. Um, uh, although that sounds very sinister, but, but the, we all have darkness in life. And I kind of absorbed that a lot more. And so I think that my acts become much more layered and interesting. And I do stuff about, um, you know, travelling. And it is all a bit faked up. So I now, I just have to have breather there. I've just got to, <laughs> got to think what I'm talking about. Um, so my subject matter is kind of boundless. But I have much more... Kind of, I'm more unified with my stage character now. And also, I'm a happier person and more secure person. And I used to want the approval of the audience. Because I think... It's interesting you say that, because I think... Uh, I haven't seen you live for a long time, but I remember I saw you yeah, a number of times back, back yeah. then. And uh, I thought, you know, it's interesting, a lot of the descriptions of yourself, I, I, I recognise, you know, the, the kind of likeable thing, but also the slight surrealism and the sort of playfulness. But it, it, it strikes me watching more recent footage of you, that you seem more comfortable in your own skin, you seem more authoritative, and it's not, it's a bit like, you know, this is me, take it or leave it, yeah. more than it used to yeah. be. Yeah, I definitely, and also in a... Though, another thing that was very important for me, that in about 1992, which I think it's a long time now, but I had been a, a stand-up for you know a few years by then, maybe it was a bit later, um, I had psychotherapy. And I think psychotherapy is, um, it, it kind of, re, if you need it, it retunes you. It, I was kind of retuned to a different vibration of um, you know, how I saw the world. And that's kind of great. Even though I only did it for two years or 18 months, I think the process um, I'm kind of always doing in my mind. Um, and so I feel that I've got much more knowledge about myself. And when you have that in your stand-up, your stand-up becomes richer. Because I think a lot of stand-up is kind of self-medicating. I think I was saying earlier, it's self-medicating anyway. You know, we... Your friends who are novelists or, um, you know, painters or sculptors, I, I think it's amazing they have to wait so long for an audience's approval. They've got to work on their own for all that time before they get, get any kind of adulation. 
and we get it straight away. And we also get the if there's you know rejection and criticism, we get that straight away, and it's kind of quite satisfying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Although it doesn't last, it's just a momentary thing, which I also find sort of quite beautiful, really, that, that comedy is truly existential, and that it's just there and then it's gone. And even on TV, TV is recording stand-up being performed to an audience, and you as an audience at home, you're the third party, so it's not in any way the same thing. I had another reviewing line once, but I hung on to it um, as a positive, where uh, a reviewer said, this isn't comedy, this is a cry for help. <laughs> <laughs> and that was like one of those Edinburgh student people had no idea what was going on. It was quite a serious show, actually. It was, you know, about sort of families and stuff. And um, you, it annoys me when you see a reviewer, in fact, I seen it quite a few times with, com- with not good comedy writer reviewers who'll go to something at Edinburgh where you can get lots of kind of a mixture of genres and it hasn't really happened to me in the same way but I've seen someone's had a fantastic show and they've sat through it and gone yeah 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 well it wasn't comedy when it mm. when it why does it have to you know why does it have to be either comedy or tragedy or a play or all this. It can be a mixture of stuff. Isn't that like the guy who reviewed Lady Chatterley's Lover and complained there wasn't enough gamekeeping? (laughs) 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 Oh, you mentioned this as well with regards to promoters that you... um, They're making assumptions about how they think an audience is going to read you. Yeah, and same thing with reviewers, same things with being um, tagged um, in terms of your identity, but also in terms of what kind of work you're making. Is oh. that? Do you think that's like a kind of big problem? That I think it's growing. I th- I really noticed it. So I will, you know, find that you know if I've gone down really well, or when I've got when I do go down very well, um, a promoter might say, "Oh God, you were so suitable for this because maybe they're a bit older." And I think, but this I have the same result whatever audience is in front of me. Or if you if you hire somebody to fly up people for you in Edinburgh and you get someone comes back and said, oh, I couldn't find any more old people. And I think, well, I don't really want old people, particularly in my audience. I want people who like comedy, like you get a cross-section of the whole of society because, you know, comedy's like chess. Age is not a problem. It's not tennis, you know, where it is. And I think that you definitely get that. They don't, they don't, I mean, not when I work for someone, um, you know, I'll, I'll get booked again. It's when you haven't worked for someone. And so they're just going, oh, well, she's this, she's that, the other. Um, oh, God, you know, it might be too terrifying for my audience because we want somebody funky and young who's just going to do the same material about how they smoke dope and, you know, they're wearing jeans, skinny jeans or whatever. Um, because... You know, some, it can be a bit interchangeable till people find their own voices. So, yeah, I do get that a bit. I find it very annoying. Mm. That's interesting, isn't it? Because in a, in a workplace, you wouldn't be able to make assumptions based no, you on wouldn't. somebody's age. You wouldn't be able to make assumptions. But you can't put that sort of oh. equal opportunity... Well, maybe you can, but at the moment, there is no way <laughs> of, of directing audiences that way. I don't... 
usually mention my age. I don't mention my age, but you know they can see my my CV that I've been. I must have been doing gigs since I I was an embryo, <laughs> um, and so I don't so much try and mention it. And also, I got diagnosed as um, you know partially deaf when I was four, after I had my first baby, and found through because I go to guys' hospital to have hearing trials and stuff that um, I've have had the same um, degree of deafness my whole life mm. without knowing it and thinking that I was not paying attention in class and stuff. So I also had a period, um, like with my first Edinburgh's, where I was adjusting to using hearing aids on stage. And I really didn't want to. You know, I used, had one at a time, and then I'd only use it on stage, or I'd not use it on stage. I got a real kind of obsessive thing about what's the best thing to do. Because in those days, um, you know, they were you'd pick up a lot of other noise and it would be echoing and not sound real. But without it, it was just I realised I I was just not hearing my audience. So I've got state of the art hearing aids. I've been on a guy's hospital trial. They're fantastic. But I just think back about I was on you know trying to work that problem through live on stage for about like two years, but it was obviously. I don't mean by a handicap like a disability, but it was a handicap trying to work it out on stage mm. where I was kind of like not really um, able to judge how loud my voice was. I realised mm. I'd been really loud. That's another thing. Up until the year, the year 2000 or two, whatever, I was shouting. I must have been shouting all the time. Couldn't When I got heckled... I, I couldn't hear what people... I just used to assume they were saying something. I've <laughs> 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 had that for a long time. And now I feel very comfortable with my hearing aids. So that's been a massive revolution for me. But again, I thought it's not something I'd go on about. Um, the thing is, the more experience you get on stage, the funnier you are. Mm. So it does happen that if you don't book people, they can't get funnier. And I do think that everybody who's a working comedian can get to a really good level of funniness if they get the exposure. And also, once you've got, like, a good agent giving you opportunities, though people will get funnier, and they get funnier and funnier and funnier. So I do think that it's really important to give everybody a go. And if they're not, at that point, if they've, they will then not get so many gigs. But there'll be other people of that diversification who are more funny who will get that gig. So there's no way of that they can... You know, I think that bills should be mixed and you should have mm. as many different people of ages, uh, you know, everything mm. and genders and whatever on stage because the really funny people will stay funny. And we've seen with comedy, the history of comedy, you know, that it's like backing a horse and some horses have been backed with a lot of kind of agent, you know, investment and whatever. And actually after about three or four years, you never hear from them again. Mm. Because they go on to do something else. Because they were quite funny. But it's more about how they themselves feel. I suppose they weren't feeling that they were that funny. Mm. Talking of the history of comedy, I just wanted to pick up on you did a show called When Comedy Was Alternative. That was the one, I think, where he said I was... Um, oh yeah, I did a, com- a show called When Comedy Was Alternative. And it was... Um, it's very difficult to do something that's about history, when all shows have to be about yourself. So I think that maybe 
the expectation is you're going to say, oh, Frank Skinner. Oh, uh, but what can you say? You say, oh, I did a gig with this person and I did a gig with that person. But what I did with that show was I talked about my journey to stand-up comedy, you know, but I had a job in advertising and I did the clown course and this happened and, you know, I was going to stick with my job and then the man in the lift, the security man, said, why didn't you go for that audition? And I went, no, and so I did. And it was that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think for me, that what's interesting about doing a show called that is, yeah, I mean, doing a show about the history of comedy in the medium of comedy yeah. is quite an interesting thing to do. But also, you know, I don't know what year that was. Was it something like 2015 or 16 It or was about 2015, I think. So, so what's interesting about that is it just feels like the 80s alternative comedy thing has yeah. just started to come back more yeah. and more. So things like Alexi Sale touring again and, and, and those kind of things. Yeah. Um, that, that it's really interesting that that moment has its, has its memory and its afterimage even, yeah. even all this time. Onwards. Yeah, it does. And um, I think, I mean, I ask myself, some, has comedy got better? Actual comedy... Has it changed? I mean, forgetting about whether it's alternative or political, has the making of jokes changed? And I think that when comedy was alternative, I think we got away with murder. In terms of material, there was a lot of waffling around. But the spirit of it was so joyous. Not like punk, like what we talk about, the pistol thing. Um, that it's just fantastic that it happened. It's brilliant that it happened. And there were some very, very good comedians who who then learnt how to do it. Um, and I think there still are lots of really good comedians. But you're seeing a lot more kind of narrative, psychological performances about, um, you know, people's lives now. Which is a bit... The sort of dead dad show thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But is that a bad thing? No. no. Because you can't just go one line after... Well, you can. One line after Tim Vine for an hour... Um, but the challenge for those people who just do one-liners is to keep it interesting for the audience because uh, yeah. it becomes slightly yeah. soporific. Exhausting. Yeah. yeah. Exhausting. So, yes, um, I think that it's become very flexible, you know, more open, and there's room for lots of different kinds of comedy. And I don't also don't believe this kind of media myth about can't, people being cancelled. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's... That's the same thing as, you know, the the cancelling Christmas in Bradford. <laughs> and it's all made up. Yeah, I mean, Christmas. The idea that anybody could believe that Christmas has been cancelled when it was there every Winterball. year. Winterball, Winterball. <laughs> it's always there from sort of like 15th of November. Earlier, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Back to school time for Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> um, so thinking back when you first started out who were your influences well when I first started out um I didn't really have any you know stars to guide my ship by um the first um female comedian I saw was Jenny Lacote mm-hmm. who I then saw at the comedy store a lot and I thought she was fantastic just talking about ordinary things and making them really funny so for me, that was like a gateway to this other world. Um, I think I saw John Sessions as well. You wouldn't think of as a stand-up comic. He did a show about Samuel Pepys or something, but it was to the audience and there was no fourth wall. So they were, um, you know, that original experience was 
so influential. And then I, I, mean, I love Steve Martin and the, he's somebody who's just, his very presence is, is so funny and he's just got so much clown in him. So yeah, those were. I think you say that not many sort of stars to guide your ship by, which is a beautiful way of putting it. Oh. What do you mean? Not many comedians in general? Or well, I hadn't, not... because I hadn't really seen very much stuff. Mm. Um, and also, I was influenced by my friends. So um, the comedian Dave Thompson, you know, he was always giving me advice and he used to write me some material sometimes. Um, and then steal it back. <laughs> <laughs> so I then find someone says somebody's been doing your joke, and then but that was all right. Um, so he gave me a lot of advice, which was really good about um, you know how to structure a bit of stand up. Um, and you know I had so many amazing contemporaries. It was like being born into a golden age mm. of comedy, mm. who are still mainly going. And um, but are they happy? <laughs> are they happy? Are they happy? <laughs> and to think about the comedy industry now, do you think it kind of has what it needs in order to be diverse? Is it diverse? Um, I, do you know, I don't know. I think it. I think it will do because I think that the thing about comedy is that in the end, it finds its level and it cuts through the bullshit. Um, and I think there's comedy for everyone. Mm. And there are lots of, oh, I mean, I, I do a bit of comedy teaching and we do a showcase at the Backyard Comedy Club. And our last showcase, uh, the organisers, you know, of the Backyard said, you've got to shift it, so it's got to start an hour earlier because we need you out by nine. But go, go up by nine, there's a surprise gig. Somebody needs to do a bit of warming up. So anyway, I managed to hide and stay behind. <laughs> and it was Dave Chappelle. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, he started, he came in very late. He didn't arrive. I had to do a lot of hanging around. He didn't start till about 10 or 11 even. And he, he went off for hours and hours and hours. And it was like he came in with an entourage, like a, mm. like a rock star. It was amazing. So, um, and that was, he was putting on a performance for his... Uh, black fans, black British fans who weren't going to pay 200 quid at the Albert Hall mm. and he was doing it for British black comedy so you know, there's, that, that was a whole other mailing list, a whole other audience who maybe are not getting enough stuff but you know there are clubs and stuff but you know we, we don't even know, I mean by we I mean you know middle class white comics you know, we just know about our world. Mm. And I think there's lots of worlds. I mean, like, people looking at the Glastonbury Cabaret tent, you know, the the running order for this year, and they were going, oh, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so, they're not a stand-up. I thought there's this whole variety circuit as well. Mm. Are people around the 90s, you think they stopped working? They didn't stop working. They've got a whole other circuit, and they're being paid a lot more than us. This circuit that I'm on, is a obscure, they're very obscure circuits compared with Live at the Apollo, mm. but which isn't a circuit, and where you then you've given them your material for only £16,000. Yeah. I say bitterly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And do you think the kind of level of diversity, or, I mean, it's, it's not just about 
who's about, as you say, it's about where people are performing. But do you think on balance it's a more diverse industry now than it was, or has that changed? So I don't ways know. I mean, you're right. I think the diversity isn't about who's performing, it's who the audience is. Shouldn't, should that not? It's but who is hearing and who is getting stuff about their lives. Because if, you're, if it's just a diverse act, more diverse act, talking to the same old people who, you know, the same audience, that's just token diversity. It's about comedy being for all the people, isn't it? Mm. But I don't know. Because yeah. I don't know all the, all those other places. Yeah, I, mean, I yeah. only know my you know I'm like a little fly crawling up the up the window. I only know my little world. So from the perspective of your little world, what would need to change um, for the comedy industry to be more diverse? Well, I don't know if I like the word industry for comedy because it's I don't mm. understand the who is the comedy industry. Yeah. There are people out there who have no influence on my life. I'm kind of yeah. I guess it's, it's, it's you the know, word it's I'm trying to use to talk about everything. I understand that's what you mean. But it's that's yeah. kind of agents and management, and actually, they maybe they're not controlling things as much as we think. Mm. I think just have lots of cl- club to, for people to have the money to be able to go to clubs. That's the first thing, for people to be able to afford to go to comedy clubs. And like in our golden heyday in the 80s and 90s, there were so many 60-seater clubs Mm. in a pub, local club, once fortnight, once a month, that local people could go to. And they would, uh, I think, more of that kind of stuff because you were just getting the, you know, 200 quid a ticket at the Albert Hall or the O2 Mm. or whatever. Um... And to have more people from different communities performing. We've seen a lot more of that anyway. Mm. You know, really, especially women and Asian women and Muslim women. Um, You said something earlier which I think was really important, actually, which is, you know, in a way it answers that question. You answered it earlier, but unknowingly in a way, because you said, actually, if you get time on stage, you get better. Yeah, but if you're not, if you're denied that time in the first place, yeah. it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that was the thing about funny women, women not being funny. How, if you're, if you're never being on stage, how can you learn to be funny? And the whole alternative comedy scene in the 80s and 90s, you know, and I was saying we got away with murder because it needed to the experience to know what was funny, especially once audiences wanted things to be funnier. You know, they got a bit mm. more judgy. And you just have to keep doing it. And comedies. Uh, the difficult thing about comedy is you've got to fail to get better. You've mm. got to keep doing it, and you've got to. You only learn by failing. But you're failing in front of the promoters and the people who book you. Mm. I mean, I had su- such terrible deaths at the comedy store, such awful, excruciating deaths that you know. Whereas now, I feel I could really do that. You know, I'm still carrying the shame. Of those terrible deaths, I feel I could hardly look anyone in the eye mm. after you know my teatro. They weren't even deaths; they were kind of self-immolations. <laughs> um, but the more you do it, uh, the more you get up and do. You've got to do it. You've yeah. got to get up and die, yeah. go over the top and die, and get better. And um, so, the more supportive promoters are, the better. And there used to be a lot more open spots. That's that would be a really important thing. There used to be an open spot on every bill where somebody could come and just try out. And sometimes that was like a, um, it was like a gladiatorial thing. The entertainment was seeing the act have a terrible time. 
But now they have whole new act nights that are often very exploitative, run by somebody who's, you know, getting some money on the door and they have to bring their friends and their friends have to buy a drink. There's no quality control. Um, that's the wrong way of putting it. There's, there's no way of learning what's funny when it's just your mates and well, other comics. Well, I think that's a really important point because uh, I remember when it was like you say, Banana Cabaret or something, yeah. you'd be able to get on between... Oh, I don't know, let's say Jeremy Hardy and Felix Dexter yeah. and two others or whatever. And and so you've got two things from that. One is the people you're performing with are professionals, so you can learn from them just by yeah. watching through osmosis. Mm-hmm. The second thing is you've got a proper audience, the audience yeah. that paid mm-hmm. to see comedy and they're there and they're full and it's not just an audience made up of the other act's friends. Yeah. So, so you get a proper audience to play to, yeah. so you get good, good quality stage time and you learn from others. And I think it's a real shame that that seems to have fallen yeah. out of the comedy industry. I think that would be, that's a very important thing. Mm. Really important thing. And it's significant as well that everything you're describing is live. It's about audiences having access to yeah. lots of live comedy. It's about live performers having live opportunities. So even in a world where Sam yeah. Ryder manages to get to number two in the Eurovision off the back of TikTok stardom, it's about the live Yeah, absolutely. And people are getting a lot of their learnt experience from doing comedy classes, which is a bit of a shortcut because you can make your mistake, be told about your mistakes in a safe place. Um, but there's nothing like the live, the live circuit. And also people get burnt out if they have to do longer sets so they're actually ready to do. Because mm. you've got to have things you want to say. That was Charmian Hughes. Woo! Yay! And what a good point about good quality opportunities when you're starting out. I know. When I started uh, doing comedy in the 80s, you could just be on the bill with a bunch of other acts. And it was great. Mm. It was a proper audience there. It was a proper night of comedy. Also, that's what I try and do with our comedy club, Funny Rabbit. Student acts who are just starting out get to appear alongside the professional acts. And it's just a chance for them to learn from older performers by both watching them and getting advice from them. Yeah, that's so beneficial. And what else struck you uh, from chatting to Charmian? Well, I think my takeaway would be the costume point. I mean, I've written a bit about this, about the the choice of what people wear on stage and how that kind of frames them. Generally, when I write about comedy, I'm thinking about comedy in general rather than about specific identities. But of course, that's going to be inflected slightly differently depending on who it is who's in the costume. So, you know, a woman's going to be judged differently from a man, but also it might be reflected in class and ethnicity and things people have certain expectations of people yeah and obviously there's so much in that episode but um thinking back on the conversation something that really struck me is how much Charmian's uh decisions about where she was going to perform and you know what literally what she was doing were shaped by having a family um we had quite a conversation when we were putting this episode together about whether to leave in that kind of anxiety about um, driving to gigs and whether this might lead to her children being orphaned but I think we both felt it was really important to leave that in because it resonated with both of us in different ways I think you said it resonated with you yeah yeah I mean it it absolutely did yeah I mean I I was still gigging when our older son Joe was born and uh, I remember you know the towards the end of the pregnancy having these paranoid fantasies as I drove home you know and I really really it struck home hearing Charmin say that yeah yeah and then um, the thing about when I get on stage is the first time I've spoken to grown-ups in (laughs) yeah 
So it's just really, um, really wonderful to hear someone talk frankly about those kind of uh, overlaps about family life and and uh, performing on stage. Yeah, absolutely. So what what is it for the benefit of people out there listening to this? What is the reason we're doing this podcast? I mean, apart from to celebrate these people. I think that is really at the root of why we're doing it. Um, As we said at the top of this episode, we're both concerned about, firstly, the very genuine underrepresentation of all kinds of demographics of people within the comedy industry, but also in the way that the story of the comedy industry, past and present, is told, that people are being erased by these these things you get sometimes about, oh, there aren't or there never were any uh, women in comedy, for example. That just ignores all the wonderful practice that's there. growing out of both of our research we kind of feel that the best way of fixing it or or one of the important steps within fixing that situation is to celebrate the wonderful practices that are going on so that's the hope with this podcast that we build a really big database publicly available to everybody that when you say big starting with six start starting with six because <laughs> there is only so much time and we need funding in order to pay all of our interviewees properly for their expertise and their appearance um, but what we want to do is get a big yes a big <laughs> a big database um, that documents people experience celebrates their craft and yeah acknowledges also the challenges that have faced them in their particular identities in this particular climate and also keep listening because this is the first of six episodes there are five more interviews with all brilliant comedians and with very different experiences some from a long time ago some from right now and uh yeah you listen along it's going to be good yeah Thanks for listening to the Stand-Up Diversity Podcast. Produced at the University of Kent with support from the Participatory and Co-Produced Research Fund. Hosted by Oliver Double and Sophie Quark. Editing and music by Anki Dams. So you're telling me, a like and subscribe? Diversity Podcast.